This is a Clark University podcast. In Endgame, there's this scene and they manage to get like all of the female heroes in one power shot and they're all gonna like work together to get the gauntlet to like Captain Marvel and then she's gonna like fly it to whoever needs to have it. And I know it's sort of meant to be this like very empowering scene of like, look at all the, look at all the female heroes working together and supporting each other. I think it ends up sort of having the opposite effect because I remember watching this and thinking like, they can fit all of the female heroes and like on the screen at one time, which I think probably doesn't necessarily send the message they were going for. Laura Zeckley, a political science professor at Clark, has long been a fan of comics and superhero plotlines. While consuming phase one of the Marvel Cinematic Universe movies, it struck Aura that very few women appeared on screen. This observation evolved into a full-scale project analyzing power, violence, and the representation of women superheroes in the MCU. Her findings appear in a chapter of The Politics of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, a book in which 25 scholars provide an expansive analysis of political messages within these extremely popular films. Aura's chapter is titled Female Combatants in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Famously, if you look at all three of the original Star Wars movies, like the trilogy from the 70s and 80s, there's, I think, less than five female characters with speaking lines. And one of those speaking lines is somebody screaming when she's thrown into a Rancor pit <laughs> like in Return of the Jedi. So, you know, it, the MCU is not alone in having what's sometimes called the Smurfette problem, right? Where you have like all of these male characters who have many and varied personality traits and the female character's trait is that she's female. And that's like, that's it. That's like the thing that makes her special and different. So I went through IMDb for all of the films and counted up like, okay, like how many characters who appear in the credits are coded as male, coded as female. And it's, it's like pretty spectacularly imbalanced. And it starts to get a little bit less imbalanced as the films go along. But, you know, in the first three phases, the two that have the largest number, like the closest to parody of major characters are Black Panther and Captain Marvel. And even in those, it's 38% of the major characters are female. And that's like, that's as good as it gets. People probably perceive this stuff in different ways. One possibility though, is that like, you know, you're watching this and you're thinking like, boy, women, women sure aren't cut out to be superheroes. Or there's something unusual about a woman being forced into superhero role and it, it must only happen because, you know, something terrible happened to her and she now she has to, like, figure out how to deal with it, right? I'm Melissa Hansen, a producer in Clark's communications office, and this is Challenge Change. Aura watched all 23 films in the first three phases of the MCU over a couple of months. She started analyzing the characters as combatants, part of her area of scholarship. I study civil war. In particular, I study conflict between states and non-state actors. And in particular, I study the internal politics and policymaking of different kinds of non-state actors, mostly in the Middle East. 
And I wrote a book with a couple of friends a few years ago called Insurgent Women, which is, you know, a short exploration of what do we know about women's participation in civil war and in non-state armed groups. We looked at women who were fighting with the FARC in Colombia. We looked at women fighting on both sides in Ukraine. And those cases combined with a lot of the other scholarship points out a couple of things that we can say seem like pretty broad patterns about women's participation in armed conflict. They participate at lower rates than men do and not always necessarily in the same roles, but it's a very normal feature of armed conflict. It's not exceptional. Another thing we know is that women end up joining armed groups for largely the same reasons men do. And then once women get there, they serve in a wide range of roles. Women serve in like everything from intelligence to carrying out terrorist operations to serving as infantry. Like there's like a wide range and it varies from group to group. The big difference is women's ability, their ability to join is much more conditioned by somebody's willingness to have them there. So what does any of this have to do with the MCU? When we look at the way that female fighters and male fighters are portrayed in the MCU, it's actually very sharply gendered in a way that matches people's ideas about what gendered participation in combat looks like, but doesn't actually always line up with the data that we have. Aura noticed that beyond the portrayal of women superheroes inaccurately reflecting the reality of women soldiers, the MCU appears to pigeonhole its female fighters into one archetype. In my head, I started calling them the lovable jerk, the gentle heroes, and the reformed villain. So the lovable jerks are people who like usually go out looking for their powers. They're pretty arrogant, and a lot of their problems are the result of their own poor decision-making around how to use their powers. The archetypal lovable jerk is Iron Man. The gentle heroes are people whose powers kind of happen to them and who try to sort of like make the best of things and who are really motivated by a desire to help people. Spider-Man is, is a really good example. Captain America, so Steve Rogers is like the archetypal gentle hero. You could even put like the Incredible Hulk in that category. And then you have the reformed villains, who are people whose powers come to them largely as a result of trauma, who are very uncomfortable with their relationship with their powers, and who are sort of constantly like trying to get over something and have like a huge amount of trauma in their past. All of the female heroes, with maybe one or two exceptions, are reformed villains. Natasha Romanoff, Scarlet Witch, Valkyrie, Gamora, Captain Marvel, right? Like they all have these very traumatic backstories where their powers were like imposed on them or like happened as a result of the accident. Then like somebody's trying to take advantage of them. None of them seems to have either the like certainty that they know what they're doing all the time and that they're like, they're absolutely fighting for, for the right cause that we see either from the gentle heroes or from the lovable jerks. Women don't get to just like be soldiers. They have to be like tortured about it. And that's changing a little bit. I actually think the TV shows have created much more nuanced female characters. I think Ms. Marvel in both the comics and the show, I would say she's like a gentle hero. And She-Hulk, I would like put in the same category. They're not like traumatized by their powers. Their powers kind of happened to them and they're like, they're trying to make the best of it. G. Willow Wilson's run of Ms. the Ms. Marvel comics are one of my favorite comics of all time. I love them so much. And I think the way that they translated that into the show is just terrific. Wow, that's amazing. How does it feel? Like an 
idea come to life? So I guess super strength is not a part of the equation. Yeah, well maybe I should have tried harder in gym. With different archetypes and gender imbalance, how do the Avengers operate as a team? Danielle Hanley, another Clark political science professor, examined the concept of family in the MCU for another chapter in the politics of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Her chapter is titled Avengers Assemblage. The Avengers team offers us a different way to think about familial relationships, so I argue that the Avengers is actually best understood as a form of family assemblage. I'm using a lot of queer theory and feminist theory in order to do that. I'm just going to bring up queer theory because it very much seems like a chosen family kind of a concept. Absolutely. Not only thinking about chosen family, but also thinking about what things we include in our definition of a family. Danielle suggests that this family assemblage includes more than the superheroes themselves. Thor's hammer is like a part of the of the family assemblage, but also that non-human characters are, are a part of that. And so that's doing some work to like pluralize what we think of as what's a part of the family. One of the pieces I'm sort of bringing in, both from queer theory and then also from a set of thinkers in this area called new materialism, thinking about like the objects and the structures and the institutions that we exist in that are also part of informing what a family is. Danielle comes from a big family, which informs her theory here. I'm from a really big family, so I'm the oldest of five kids, and then my mom is one of seven. And all of my uncles, except for her two oldest brothers, lived within like a two mile radius of our house growing up because my grandparents lived with us. And so I think like, on the one hand, I have like a super conventional family, mother, father, siblings, dog. And on the other hand, we always had like cousins and you know, the people that you called cousins that weren't actually cousins. And also like other people staying with us, like there was always just like this abundance of people. And so I think part of my upbringing is pushing me to think about, okay, like how does what I exist in function as a family? And how does that push against the like conventional understanding of family? Part of what is interesting and also frustrating about movies like The Avengers is that violence is so front and center and people love Captain America Civil War and I cannot stand this movie. And part of it is because there's this major set piece where these people who were functioning as a family are now trying to not kill but definitely hurt each other. And there's something so deeply troubling about that. Thinking about a longer timeline and a more expansive vision of the family in this chapter, but of politics more generally, is like a big part of the work that I'm doing. Danielle's area of expertise involves grief, rage, and Greek tragedy. You may remember hearing about her research a few episodes back. To learn more about political science at Clark, visit clarku.edu slash political science. Challenge Change is produced by Andrew Hart and Melissa Hansen for Clark University. Find other episodes wherever you listen to podcasts. We're taking a break next week for Thanksgiving. Enjoy any time you spend celebrating, and we'll be back at the start of December. TTYL. One, two, three. Clark! <laughs>